hopefully you still have your Bibles open there to Psalm 22. That's be our text this morning. The question I want to look at this morning is, why hast thou forsaken me? I had initially thought that I would wait and deal with that question when we get to the book of Matthew, looking at the different questions asked in Scripture, but I felt led to look at that this morning. Why hast thou forsaken me? That's what the, the question our Savior asked in verse 1, Psalm 22. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why art thou so far from helping me from the words of my roaring? O my God, I cry in the daytime, but thou hearest not, and in the night season, and am not silent. Now David is the man who penned these words. He wrote these words because when David wrote this psalm, this is the way he felt. And every believer understands that. We've all felt that way at some time or another, haven't we? There's been a time you felt like the Lord's not hearing me. He doesn't hear. I cry to him in prayer, but the Lord does not hear. And this is the way David felt when he wrote this psalm. Now, remember that. We'll come back to that here in just a few minutes. These are the words of David, but they're also the words of the Savior on the cross. You know, I'm told that the Savior quoted this psalm from the cross, and I tend to believe it because what is recorded that he said on the cross is, is much of what is written here in, in Psalm 22. Under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, David wrote these words because he felt this way, but he also wrote the words that Christ would say on the cross over a thousand years before the Lord Jesus was ever born. Now only God could do that, couldn't he? This is why Psalm 22 is commonly referred to as the Psalm of the Cross. This is the Psalm of the Cross, not just because it gives us the events of the cross or what people said and did at the cross. This Psalm gives us the message of the cross. This Psalm tells us why Christ was on the cross and what he accomplished while he was there. The Psalm begins, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? 31 verses later, it ends with, it is finished. The phrase, what he, um, that he hath done this, that's what it means. It's finished. It begins with, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And ends with, it's finished. Now something mighty important happened in those 31 verses, didn't it? So the question I want us to consider this morning is, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Now you know this, the Savior's not asking this question for his information. He knows what's going on there because this is his will being carried out. The Savior asked this question for our information so that we will know what it is he's accomplishing on the cross and why he's there. The Savior asked the question and then he gives us the answer. And the first reason the Father forsook the Son, forsook the Son, is God is inflexibly just. God must always be just. He must always do what's right because God's holy. See that in verse 3? But thou art holy, O thou that inhabitest the praises of Israel. See, the Savior asked this question, so we'll know that the Father is dealing with him in justice and holiness. The cross. This is how Almighty God can save his people in both justice and mercy, both justice and mercy. And it's through the suffering, through the death, 
Christ the sinner substitute. The father forsook his son at Calvary because the father had made his son sin for his people. The Savior. And something, you know, this is something I probably quote in almost every single message. Christ was made sin. Now we can't understand that. We can't understand how that can be. We just know it's so because that's what God said in his word. This is something only God can do. The Holy Son of God took the sin of his people into his own body. He made that sin to be his sin, even though he never committed a sin. And when the Son was made sin, the Father gave his Son absolute justice for that sin. He gave his son everything that sin deserves because that's what God's holy nature requires. And you'll notice that's what's happening here. The Savior, the Son, doesn't cry to his Father from the cross. He cries, my God. He cries to God the judge because that's who's punishing him. God the judge. He's punishing him for sin. The Father took away his holy or his loving presence from the Son, because God's holy. He's inflexibly just. He can't even look on sin. Even when that sin is found in his beloved Son, God must punish sin. Every sin, he must punish it. And that's what he did at Calvary. Look at Isaiah chapter 49. See, this is the only reason, the one and only reason that the Father would forsake his son. It's because of sin. Isaiah 59 verse 2. But your iniquities have separated between you and your God. And your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. The father separated himself from his son. He would not hear him. He would not hear him in mercy. He would not hear him in love and grace because the son had been made sin and that sin was made to be his sin. And that separation was so complete, the father wouldn't hear the prayer of his son. The Lord promised, I will by no means clear the guilty. His son was made guilty and the father wouldn't clear him. The father punished his own son. He poured out all of his holy fury upon his son without even a hint of love, without even a hint of mercy because God the father is holy and he's just. Now that means, since God's holy and he's just, that means God must punish sin, right? But it also means he can't punish the innocent. Punishing the innocent, that would be unjust. That wouldn't be right. The father did not put an innocent man to death at Calvary. He put a guilty man to death at Calvary. Now I can't explain that. I just know it's so. The holy son of God never stopped being holy, but he became guilty of all of the sin of his people. And that's why the father punished him. Let me show you that. Verse 6. Back in our text. But I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised of the people. 
Now that word worm there means maggot. That's what it means. You're getting a view in your mind of a bunch of maggots on a garbage pile. That's what the Son of God said he had become. That's what he was made, a worm. It's the same word that's used to describe God's sinful people. Isaiah 41, verse 14, Fear not, thou worm, Jacob. Jacob, you're a worm. You're a sinful worm. Christ the substitute became what his people are. He became a worm so that he could make his people what he is, holy and righteous. Isn't that what 2 Corinthians 5.21 is all about? For he hath made him sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. The Son of God was made what he was not, so he could make his people what they're not. Now the maggot that's referred to here is a specific maggot. It's a scarlet worm. I didn't know there are different kinds of maggots. Apparently there are. It's a scarlet worm. This worm is what they used to dye linen red in the tabernacle. Remember how they had red threads and and garments dyed red and these things? Well, they got that dye from this worm, the scarlet worm. When the female worm, this maggot, is ready to give birth, what she does is she attaches herself to the trunk of a tree. And she dies attached to that tree. And her larvae are protected by her dead body. Until they're eventually, until they're eventually born. And when she dies, and I guess as the larvae come now, I don't understand how all this works, but anyway, when she attaches herself to that tree, you know what happens to that tree? She stains it red. <laughs> and they use that, they would go gather that up and use it to dye garments red. The worm died so her young could live. That's what happened at Calvary. Christ was made a worm. He was made what his people are. And he died so that his people could live. You see, the father made his son guilty of the sin of his people so he could, so he could slaughter him in justice. Right? The, the father couldn't, couldn't slaughter him. He couldn't allow him to be put to death if he was innocent, right? He had to make him guilty and so the father could slaughter him in justice. But now that sin is gone, All the sin that's laid on Christ is gone under his precious sin-atoning blood. Now the Father can show mercy to his elect and give them life. See, both justice and mercy were carried out of Calvary because God is just. He's just. All right, number two. The Father forsook his Son so that he keep his promise to the Old Testament believers. Verse four. Our fathers trusted in thee. They trusted and thou didst deliver them. They cried unto thee and were delivered. They trusted in thee and they were not confounded. It seems like the, the Savior saying, our fathers trusted in thee. They cried, you heard them. They cried and they were delivered, but I cried and you don't hear me. I cried and you won't, won't deliver me. Now the fathers David talks about here are the Old Testament believers. And God promised them. He came and made promises to them. He promised them salvation, life, through the death of the, of the sacrifice, through the death of a substitute, through the death of another. God made that first promise to Adam and Eve. 
Remember when he was thrusting them out of the garden? God made promise to Adam and Eve, the seed of woman's coming. And he's going to crush the serpent's head. Adam and Eve were naked. They were ashamed. They tried to cover themselves with those fig leaves. And God gave them a picture of covering their shame by killing that animal, probably a lamb, and clothing them in the skin of, of that animal. Well, about 4,000 years later, the father forsook his son at Calvary to keep the promise he made to Adam that the seed of woman is going to crush the serpent's head. You see, when Christ died as a substitute for his people, he took away Satan's power to be able to accuse God's people anymore. He can't accuse them because sin's gone. When Christ was crucified, yes, his heel was bruised, wasn't it? But he crushed Satan's head. He put Satan out of business by his sacrifice for his people that took their sin away. Then sometime later, God made promise to one of Adam's sons, Abel. He made a promise. Abel, I'm going to accept sinners in the blood of the sacrifice. Sinners can come worship me in the blood of the sacrifice. That's why Abel came worshiping God, offering a lamb. He didn't bring the, I bet, you know, they had to eat. I bet Abel had a garden too, don't you reckon? But he didn't bring fruits and vegetables from his garden. He brought a lamb. Because God promised him, sinners can worship me in the blood of the lamb. I'll, I'll accept sinners in the blood of the lamb. And about 6,000 years later, God kept that promise he made to Abel. Christ, the lamb of God. That's how John the Baptist identified him. Behold, he said, look, this is the lamb of God. But not just any old lamb. This is not a lamb that's a picture. This is the real McCoy. This is the Lamb of God come to take away the sin of the world. And God accepts his sinful people in the blood of Christ. It's all because of the blood. The blood takes away the sin that would separate us from God. It's because of the blood, just like God promised Abel. Then sometime later, God made a promise to Abraham. He told Abraham, God's elect, your seed, those who have the faith of Abraham, they're going to live through the death of the substitute. That's what Abraham and Isaac learned at the top of Mount Moriah. Abraham getting ready to kill his son like God told him to do. He's going to slit his son's throat. He's going to draw and quarter that body. He's going to burn it to ash. And right as he's ready to lift that knife and slay his son, God told Abraham, stop. And behold, behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. And Abraham took that ram And he offered that ram up in the stead as a substitute for his son Isaac. And Abraham and Isaac stood and watched that sacrifice. Now they'd seen lots of sacrifices before, hadn't they? Don't you reckon they paid a little closer attention to that one than ever before? They watched that ram die. And this is what they knew. Isaac lives. Isaac's coming down off this mountain to go back to those servants because the ram died in his place. The substitute died in his place. Remember when the Lord said, Abraham saw my day and was glad? This was the day. The Lord showed Abraham what that means. And Abraham, just like we saw in our lesson this morning, he had to be astonished. He was astonished. Abraham saw. This is how God is going to save his people from their sin. 
It's by the death of his son, the Lamb of God. And at Calvary, God kept his promise to Abraham. He slew the Lamb of God so that his people would go free. Then God made a promise to his people. They were in bondage in Egypt. And God made a promise to his people. In the picture of the Passover lamb. Remember the Lord had sent 11 plagues. And Pharaoh said, I'll not let, I'll not let your people go. God hardened his heart. And he would not let them go. Pharaoh hardened his heart. Would not let the people go. God said, all right, I must, Moses, I must send one more plague. And after that, the Egyptians are going to thrust you out. You get ready to go. You're going tonight. He gave him the Passover lamb. And God passed through the lamb that night and slew every firstborn where there was not blood on the door. The firstborn in the Israelite, in the Israelite houses lived. You know why that firstborn lived? The lamb died in his place. And the way we know the lamb died in his place is the blood was sprinkled on the door. Because of that blood, the firstborn lived and God's people went free. Completely and utterly free. That was a picture. God promised his people. Well, God kept that promise to his people Israel at Calvary. He kept that promise to spiritual Israel. Christ died in the place of his people so that they live. And when his blood is sprinkled by the Holy Spirit on our hearts, we go free. Free from bondage to the law. Free from, from the, the, the controlling power of sin. Free from the fear of death. We go free. Free. By the blood of Christ. God kept his promise to his people Israel at Calvary. You see, all those Old Testament fathers, they were saved. The same way, exact same way you and I are. It's by faith in Christ. By faith in Christ. They're all like Abraham. They all saw Christ's day and were glad. Now I wouldn't reckon that they see him as clearly as we do. Because we have the, the recorded finished work of Christ. We have the, the, his sacrifice recorded for us. But they saw. Salvation is by grace through faith. And it can't be any other way. Because God can't change. See those Old Testament believers look forward to Christ. The same way we look back on him. And their faith in Christ, they trusted Christ. They trusted that God would sacrifice that lamb, his son, to put their sin away. That's their hope of eternal life. They died in faith. And that what Hebrews 11 says? They died in faith. This was their hope. They hung on to it to their dying breath. And that faith would have been in vain if the father had not turned his back on his son at Calvary. The father turned his back on his son to keep his promise of redemption that's through the blood of Christ. All right, thirdly, the father forsook the son at Calvary because this is God's eternal will and purpose being carried out. Now, Scripture tells us that before God created anything, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, all that existed at that time, they got together and they determined that they would save a people. The Father chose a people that he would save out of Adam's fallen race. And they, they, they determined they would save those people by the sacrifice of the Son who would be made flesh so that he could redeem his people from their sin. That's, that was the eternal will and purpose of the triune God. The redemption price would be paid 
by the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. See, God always saw the sin of His people as, as put away in the Lamb slain from, from the foundation of the world. This was always God's purpose. It was always God's purpose to pay the price for the sin of His people by the blood of His own Son. That was always God's will. God didn't give the law to Moses and see, well, that didn't work. So, you know, we're going to try playing plan B. You know, God didn't try Adam and say, well, that didn't work. And so now we're going to try playing B, the law. Well, that didn't work. Now we're going to try playing C, salvation in Christ. No. God's eternal purpose was to put away the sin of his people by the blood of Christ. Calvary. Everything that happened there, everything, every detail, you know what it is? It's God's eternal will and purpose being carried out. That's what it is. What God purposed in eternity, he did in time. He accomplished in time. The Father plunged the sword of justice into the heart of his fellow. His own son. When he made his soul an offering for sin. The Father and the Son did business in the soul. And the Father used sinful men as an instrument to plunge the sword of justice into his body. Men could touch his body. Men could, because the blood must be shed. His body must be torn. His body must be pierced. It must be. The Father used men as an instrument to accomplish that. And the Holy Spirit inspired David to write exactly what these men would do, both Jew and Roman. He wrote exactly what these men would do more than a thousand years before they did it. (laughs) And then they did it. And it's recorded for us what they did. You know why? So we'll know for sure what they were doing is carrying out God's will. I read that to you in Matthew chapter 27 to open the service. Everything that's said here, that's what they did, isn't it? Look at verse 7. All they that see me laugh me to scorn. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head, saying he trusted in the Lord that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him now, seeing he delighteth in him. Isn't that exactly what they said? They threw dice for his garments. Rather than tear his garment in in several pieces, they threw dice for it. Because that's what David said that they did. Everything they did, (laughs) they did to, to fulfill God's eternal will and purpose. Look at verse 12. Many bulls have compassed me. Strong bulls of Bashan have beset me round. They gaped upon me with their mouths as a ravening and a roaring lion. I'm poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It's melted in the midst of my bowels. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue cleaveth to my jaws. He cried, I thirst. Thou hast brought me into the dust of death. He suffered and died. For dogs have compassed me. The assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierced my hands and feet. They nailed him to the tree with nails through his hands and his feet. I may tell all my bones. He's so stretched out, he can tell all of his bones. They look and stare upon me. They part my garments among them and cast lots upon my vesture. Both the Jews and the Roman soldiers did exactly what the Old Testament scriptures said they do. They did it exactly. It's like they used the Old Testament scriptures as a script in a play. They just followed the script in the play. But you know that's not what they were doing. These scribes and Pharisees and elders, I mean, they're 
business was to be in those Old Testament scriptures, to study them as, as lawyers studying those, those scriptures, the scribes wrote them down. You'd think at some point they'd stop and say, you know, all this sounds familiar. But they didn't. They didn't. They were so consumed with hatred for Jesus of Nazareth. They did everything their wicked hearts could imagine to do to him. That's why he suffered as no man ever suffered. They poured out their hatred of God Almighty on the body of that man. And when they did, everything that they wanted to do, you know what they did? They accomplished God's eternal purpose. Not their will, they accomplished God's will. Let me show you that in Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. This is something that's really thrilling to think about. Look at verse 26. The kings of the earth stood up, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ, for of a truth, against thy holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together for to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. See, only God could make all that happen. Only God could make men do what they wanted to do to accomplish his eternal will and purpose. And that's the assurance of salvation for God's people. Nothing's changed from then till now. It's been 2,000 years since our, our Lord gave up the ghost, but nothing's changed from then until now. Salvation is still God's eternal purpose. And God's going to save those people. And nothing will make him change his mind. This is his eternal will and purpose. Salvation of God's people is sure. There's a lot of things in this life you can doubt, but this don't have to be one of them. God's going to save his people. He's not going to lose one of them. And I'll tell you something else that's assuring for God's people. You know, I told you at Calvary, all that was happening was God's eternal will and purpose being carried out. You see that, don't you? The people, those Roman soldiers, those Jews, did everything the Lord said that they'd do. What's the date today? January 28th, 2024. You know what's happening today? Same thing that happened at Calvary. God's eternal will and purpose is being carried out. And it's happened every day of all the time of creation. What is happening is God's eternal will and purpose being carried out. What's going on in your life today? Huh? What kind of week have you had? Well, I can tell you this. Whatever happened, whatever kind of week it was, now, you hang on to this because it's so. It's God's eternal will and purpose being carried out for you. That's exactly what it is. Exactly. That takes the worry out of the situation, doesn't it? <laughs> Whatever's happening to you didn't happen because you made a mistake. And this is, you know, no, this is God's eternal will and purpose. This didn't happen to you because 
somebody's being mean and somebody's awful. And it, you know, no, no, no. That's just a secondary thing. This is happening because this is God's eternal will and purpose being carried out for you specifically. Isn't that good? That's comforting, isn't it? You know, our Savior suffered more than any man has suffered before or since. But even in his sufferings, he had hope. And that's why I wanted to give us hope in this, in whatever, whatever it is you're going through. Here's hope. Our Savior suffered in hope. Whatever it is you're going through, I promise you, it, nothing like he suffered. Whatever it is you're going through, you can suffer in hope. You can go through it in hope. The Savior had hope. And it wasn't like, well, I hope this will happen, but I don't know if it will. The Savior had an expectation. That's what that word hope means in Scripture. It's an expectation. He had an expectation that the Father will do everything He promised Him He'd do. Now, that's a good expectation, isn't it? Because the Father's going to keep His promise. The Savior suffered an expectation that His suffering would not be in vain. It's not going to be for nothing. He's trusted His Father to redeem everyone, to save everyone, for whom he was dying. He trusted his father that his suffering would accomplish the redemption of his people and pay their price for their sin. That's what he says in verse 9. But thou art he that took me out of the womb. Thou didst make me hope when I was upon my mother's breast. I was cast upon thee from the womb. Thou art my God from my mother's belly. I've trusted in you the whole time that I've been a man here on earth. I, I trusted you in eternity before creation. I've trusted you all through this time and in my dying agony, I'm still trusting you because God's going to carry out his eternal will and purpose. And God's purpose is this. He's going to save his people from their sin. He's going to have them all glorified together with Christ in glory. That's God's purpose and that's going to happen because God's going to carry out his will today just like he did 2,000 years ago, Calvary. Then here's the last thing. The father forsook his son at Calvary so that there would be a gospel to preach to God's people. Now the Savior suffered until he died. They laid a dead body in the tomb. But three days later, he came out of that tomb because he arose from the dead. And he arose from the dead because his sacrifice put away all that sin that had been charged to him. Verse 19. But be not thou far from me, O Lord, O my strength. Haste thee to help me. Deliver my soul from the sword, my darling from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth, for thou hast heard me from the horns of the unicorns. The Father, the Christ cried that the Father would deliver him, and he did. He delivered him from the power of those dogs, from the power of those wicked men. When Christ died, they couldn't do one more thing to him. Oh, the soldier pierced his side, but didn't do anything. He, he dead, didn't he? He was, he was already dead. And three days later, the father delivered him from the tomb. He delivered him from the grave because the price had been paid. Christ rose again as proof positive. His sacrifice put away the sin of his people. Now, if Christ died for you, this is you can just this is God's. I hate to say proof, but this is the evidence. You can rest assured your sin debt's been paid. He raised his son from the dead. 
If there was any sin left on him, he wouldn't have been raised. He put away all of the sin of all of his people by his one sacrifice. And that's the good news of the gospel. We can call on sinners to trust Christ because this is a sure thing. We know it's a sure thing because Christ arose from the tomb. He was delivered for our offenses and raised again for our justification. This is the good news of the gospel. And you know, you will hear many different preachers preaching the gospel of Christ. We're blessed to, to know many of them, and I try through conferences and different things to, to have as many of them as I know come here and preach to you. I want you to know them. I want you to hear them. You're going to hear many different men preach the gospel of Christ. But I can tell you when you're going to hear. I mean, when you're really going to hear. When you're really going to believe. When you're really going to receive life from Christ. It's when the Lord preaches to your heart. When you quit hearing the voice of a preacher here and hear God in the heart, that's when you're going to believe. That's when you're going to live. Verse 22, the Savior says, I will declare thy name unto my brethren. All those people for whom Christ died. Oh, their sin caused him so much suffering. He says, they're my brethren. <laughs> my brethren. I'm going to declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the congregation will I praise thee. Verse 25. My praise shall be of thee in the great congregation. I'll pay my vows before them that fear him. The meek, they shall eat and be satisfied. They shall praise the Lord that seek him. Your heart shall live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn unto the Lord. And all the kindreds of the nations shall worship before thee. For the kingdom is the Lord's. And he's the governor among the nations. Isn't it wonderful that the one who suffered and died for the sin of his people is also the one that preaches to our hearts. See, he preaches to our hearts to ensure we hear and we believe. The one who suffered and died, he's the governor. He's the king of all nations. He rules to ensure the salvation of his people. You see, the Lord is the one who has, has to speak to our hearts. He has to give us life. He has to give us faith in Christ. But I'll tell you, he does it through men preaching Christ to you. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. Now, the Lord has given us here in this congregation. I said it right, us, not just me, us. He's given us the great burden and the great privilege to preach Christ to our generation. The Lord's given that to us. Now that's a burden. I mean, all the Old Testament prophets talk about the burden of the Lord. Oh, but isn't it a blessing? Isn't it a blessing to be able to tell folks about Christ? Isn't it a blessing? Even if you're not a preacher and somebody asks you a question, you feel like, well, I can't explain it. Isn't it a blessing to be able to tell them, come with me and hear? <laughs> you know it's a bless oh how the Lord's blessed us. And you know how we are most of the time. It feels to us like, well, nobody's listening. Nobody's believing now. I feel like Isaiah. Lord, who had believed our report, you know? To whom have the arm of the Lord been revealed? If, Lord, am I wasting my time? But we keep on preaching. Because we got nothing else to do. There's nothing else to do to help people but preach Christ to them. We keep preaching Christ. 
We keep preaching Christ to our generation. Because I'll tell you what, this is what I know for sure. Whoever it is that the Lord has chosen in this generation, he's going to save them by the foolishness of preaching. So I'm determined to preach Christ. How about you? Look what David says in verse 30. A seed shall serve him. I know they will. That's what we're going to keep preaching to them. A seed shall serve him. It shall be accounted to the Lord for a generation. They shall come and they shall declare his righteousness unto a people that shall be born, that he hath done this. This is what we're going to do by God's grace. We're going to keep declaring to this next generation his righteousness. His righteousness. That a people will be born. Now, remember I told you, when David wrote this psalm, boy, he really felt this way. He really felt like the Lord had forsaken him. It felt like that the Lord would not hear his prayer. This is one of the one of the reasons we've been told never trust our feelings. <laughs> don't trust your feelings. I don't care what it feels like. I don't care what it looks like. Trust the word of God. And we all feel that way sometimes. There's nothing more miserable than that. Nothing is more miserable than feeling like the Lord's not hearing your prayer. There's nothing more miserable and feeling like I can't worship him, I can't see him, I can't, I can't hear. I, I hear the words. I, I know those words are true, but it's just, my heart is so cold and, and dead. Nothing more miserable than that. Nothing. I know we feel that way sometimes, but you listen to me. The Lord will never, this is his promise to his people. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Never. When it feels like it, it's not so. Our feelings are wrong. Now our feelings are wrong. This is the promise of Almighty God. I will never leave you nor forsake you. And you know why he can keep that promise in justice? He forsook his son as your substitute at Calvary. See, the death of Christ removed all the sin of his people. So there's no reason that the Father would forsake his people. All the Father has left for his people his acceptance, his mercy, his grace, his love. Because there's no fury left in him. He poured it all out on his son, our substitute at Calvary. That's the message of the cross. Not just that Christ died, but how that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. What did Christ accomplish in his death? What does that mean to you and me, his people, as we go through the rest of our journey through this veil of tears here below? It's good news, isn't it? Good news. I hope God will bless that to your heart and thrill you and fill your tank up to help you get through this week. All right, let's bow together. Our Father. Oh, our hearts are broken, our hearts are are softened, our hearts are lifted up to praise and thanksgiving to Thee. How that You would accomplish the salvation of sinful, wretched men and women like we are through the horrible suffering and sacrifice 
of our Savior on Calvary's tree where you would forsake your own son because of the sin of your people being laid on him. And that you would accept a people like we are because his sacrifice has satisfied your justice and taken away our sin. Oh, Father, how I thank you. And Father, I pray that you take your word as it's been preached this morning. Father, cause it to, to reveal the glory of Christ to our hearts. Cause it to strengthen us to keep looking to Thee, keep trusting in Thee, not looking at the world around us, not trusting in the world around us, not trusting in what we do, what we think, what we say, but to trust in Thee, to strengthen and encourage our hearts. Father, cause us to be faithful to Thy cause. All for this next generation that's coming up. Father, I beg of you that you give to them what you've given to us a place where they can come their whole life long and hear the gospel of Christ, to be pointed to the Savior, to have their hearts comforted and encouraged and strengthened through the preaching of Christ our Savior. Father, it's in his name, for his glory, in his sake we pray. Amen. All right, Sean.